Right, we did it. Good morning again. My name is Paul Stiver. I'm one of the elders here at Hope. I'm on staff with Hope. I work with our Leadership Development Institute, and I'm also a pastoral resident. Spent a lot of time uh, working with stuff with Brian here at Hope Lower Town. We are in week five. It's flying by of our stories in stained glass summer sermon series. Taking a chance to look at our uh, this fan. Uh, taking a chance to look at the building, the beautiful windows in this building, and kind of better understand the history of those windows, their importance to us, their importance. Uh, to the doctrine of the church in general. And it's been, I've really enjoyed it. Putting this together was super fun. Uh, And and I know Brian's enjoyed it as well. We've loved looking at and getting a better understanding of where we are situated. Um, This is me uh, catching a few bass this summer and spring. Uh, I I like to fish. I even added these fun little graphics. Uh, I also only have one pose for pictures, if you can tell. I just do like a surprise face. That's my move, but uh, I actually didn't post a bigger bass that I caught. A little humility sometimes. Um, but the reason why I put that up there, when you think about fishing, I don't know if you've gone fishing, but it's actually, it's kind of wild because you take a tiny lure and cast it into a massive body of water and you're like, yeah, I'm, a fish is gonna bite that. I don't know where it could be. It's gotta be in there somewhere. Uh, and yet, actually, you catch fish sometimes. And, and I think when we look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, we're talking about the Holy Spirit today. When we look at who he is, oftentimes it can feel like we're just casting into a vast body of water. We don't, how do I make sense of who the Holy Spirit is, what he does? I'm not really sure. And so we're going to take some time today. Actually, I titled this message, The Holy Spirit 101. There's handouts available in the back as well as sermon notes because because the topic of the Holy Spirit can often be so nebulous and so out there, I wanted to really just kind of systematize what does the Bible say about who he is, and then what can we make of that going forward. And so feel free if you haven't grabbed one to grab a handout, uh, but feel free to jot down notes, anything that pops up to you. Uh, And my hope is that by looking at what we can really grab onto about what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit, it can kind of help us uh, sort through maybe what we've been taught in the past or what we've learned that sometimes isn't exactly what the Bible says. Um, and so we're going to look at this window now, which is the, the third one here in the middle, uh, of the, and the dove, the Holy Spirit coming down. And we're going to kind of look at, at who the Holy Spirit is and then what he does. We're going to kind of trace out the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament in fullness um, and so just to, just really quickly who he is, just called the spirit of, of Christ, the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the helper, um, the advocate. We see all these different names set of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and we have to understand why. And to do that, I want to get into the storyline of the Bible a little bit, as I typically do. And I'll start with a quote here from a guy named B.B. Warfield, who says, the Old Testament may be likened to a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. The introduction of light brings into it nothing which was not in it before, but it brings out into clearer view much of what is in it, but was only dimly or even not at all perceived before. Thus, the Old Testament revelation of God is not corrected by the fuller revelation that follows it, but only perfected, extended, and enlarged. And so we get this idea that that he's saying that the the Old Testament is kind of like this room where we can't see everything, it's dimly lighted. 
But there's some things we can kind of make out. We can kind of understand about who God is, about the Bible's story of redemption, what the plan is, about who the Holy Spirit is. We can't, we can't, we don't have them fully understood. We can kind of understand them. And then we get to the New Testament. And all of a sudden now we can make sense of it. We can see the lamp and the decorations. We can see the artwork on the wall. We can understand now God's plan fully. We can understand who the Holy Spirit is more clearly, who God himself is more clearly. And so, but we have these Old Testament glimpses of the Spirit. We have um, Bezalel and Aholiab in the book of Exodus have the Spirit come upon them so they can build the tabernacle. Saul receives the Spirit to rule over God's people and then it's withdrawn from him. David receives the Spirit and then prays after he sins that it wouldn't be withdrawn from him. We have the prophets talking about the Spirit to come. But when we're looking at the storyline of the Bible, we're kind of thinking about it, if you think about it like running the bases in baseball. When Jesus comes on the scene, the story of the Bible is kind of getting close to third base. And we're going to round third base and come home, bring the whole story home. And, and so that's what we get when I, in our passage for today in John chapter 3. And we get Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the nighttime uh, so as an honor-shame culture, not to bring shame on Jesus by confronting him. He, he goes to him in, in quiet in the nighttime. And he's this Pharisee. He's this ruler. He's the leader of the Israelites. And then we get this conversation recorded in John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must, not be born, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases and you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. So we get this conversation where Nicodemus is like, I don't understand, what's this? You're a teacher from God, what's the way of salvation? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Spirit gives birth to spirit. We get this language here. Actually, Nicodemus is very confused at this point. Obviously, we see that by his question. How can, should I go back into my, how am I born again? I don't understand this. But what Nicodemus is forgetting is one of the Old Testament prophets. And in fact, he's missing that there's this spirit language, this new birth language that Jesus is using. And where is Jesus getting this from that, it, that Nicodemus should know? And one of the places we can go back to is Ezekiel chapter 36, one of the major prophets kind of smack dab in the middle of the Old Testament. The Israelites are in exile in Ezekiel, and they're, they're constantly wandering and sinning and, and worshiping false gods, and, God, and they, they can't keep the law that God has given them. And so God is pronouncing a judgment, but then he's pronouncing a word of hope through the prophet Ezekiel. He says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about this idea of spirit, giving birth to spirit, this, this new birth idea, this you must be born again idea, Nicodemus should have caught that. If he's remembering back to Ezekiel 36 where God makes this promise, he says, you aren't keeping my law. In fact, you're getting worse. So I'm going to do something. I'm going to put a new heart and a right spirit in you. I am going to transform you. And that's that promise, one of the examples of the promises of the Holy Spirit. Last week, Brian talked about the prophet Joel, who, who we see in Acts chapter 2. We'll see later we're going to talk about. But that another prophet making a promise about the Spirit that is fulfilled in the New Testament. Another part of that dimly lit furniture, when the light comes on, now we can see and make sense of it. But Jesus is going to continue, and the Gospel of John is actually where we get a lot of information about the Holy Spirit from Jesus himself. And so this is just some things that Jesus tells us about the Holy Spirit from John chapter 14 to 16 when he's nearing his death. First it says the Holy Spirit is sent to us so we are not left as orphans but have Christ's presence with us forever. In fact, if you remember the passage, Jesus says it's actually going to be better for you if I go away. And you're thinking, what, Jesus, no, we want you around. We want you to be here. He says, I'm actually, I will be here, but in a different way, by my spirit, where it's not just me, one person, but I can now indwell people. We see the spirit teaches us and reminds us of Jesus's words. This was most important for the apostles in writing the New Testament, that the spirit is actually the capital A author of the Bible. When we talk about the Bible's authorship, Right? We've got people like the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, these, these authors of the scriptures, Prophet Ezekiel, etc. The Spirit is actually the one inspiring them to write what to say. He doesn't overrule their personality, but works with it. However, he ensures that all the words that he wants in the scriptures are there. Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, judgment, and righteousness. We see this more in the proclamation of the gospel. The Holy Spirit guides believers into all the truth. It's actually the Spirit working in us to bring us to understand the truth. And then the last thing Jesus says kind of is, the Holy Spirit brings glory to God the Father and Jesus. Well, this is often what theologians call the self-effacing nature of the Holy Spirit. That when we think about the Trinity of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, the Spirit's role is to continually point to and show the weight of and the magnitude and the beauty of Jesus. And you may have grown up in a church setting where the Holy Spirit was used to be the whole focus, where we want, we want to point to the Holy Spirit all the time and talk about all the things the Holy Spirit does. But the Holy Spirit doesn't even operate that way. His role is and his desire is that Jesus would be magnified and glorified, not him. That's the self-effacing nature of the Holy Spirit, that he wants Jesus to be the star of the show. Which makes sense when we consider the storyline of the scriptures that the Spirit has authored, because it's all about Jesus. And then we get to the book of Acts, though. Now, this is the Holy Spirit's book. This is where now Jesus promises here in Acts chapter 1 that the disciples will receive the Holy Spirit in power. 
And we'll see this pouring out of the Spirit that Brian talked about last week, that Joel, the, the prophet Joel, hundreds of years before said, there's a day that's going to come where my, the Spirit of God is going to fall upon the people. Some other ways we see the Spirit moving in the book of Acts, the giving of the Spirit, coming, coming upon people, falling upon. People are baptized with the Spirit, and people are filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And the last thing to point out here in the book of Acts that we see the Spirit not only, in, in number five there, not only falling upon Jews and coming into Jews' lives, but Gentiles, that the plan of God was that all from any ethnicity could be saved and could receive the Holy Spirit. And so we get, that's the Spirit's book where he's now going to take the gospel through the early church and through the disciples and advance the gospel by declaring it to the nations. And then we can kind of wrap everything up by looking at Galatians here in the Holy Spirit and God's plan of redemption. So from the New Testament now, the Apostle Paul kind of making sense of all of it here in the book of Galatians, especially chapter 3. But I love verses 10 through 14 here. We can learn so much about God and his plan from this. Paul says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So there's a lot going on just in these four verses. So let's try and make a sense of it. Paul says, everybody that's relying on the works of the law for salvation to earn their favor with God, their status with God, is actually under a curse. Because the law itself, he quotes here, says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. That if you want to be saved by the law, you have to keep the entire law. And you can't, so it's a curse to you. And then he continues, clearly no one who relies on it is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. So he says, not only can you not keep the law, that's not even the way to be justified. This is from the prophet Habakkuk where it says, the righteous, actually the people that will be just and declared just by God are those who live by faith in him, not trying to relate to him by the law, but through belief. And he says the law is not based on faith. It says the person who does these things will live by them. If you're trying to work your way to God, you're trying not to believe your way to him. You're saying I can earn my way to him, and so then to cap it all, he says, Christ redeemed us from that curse by going to the cross as a cursed man. As it says in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who's hung on a pole. Paul says the cross of Christ is where he is condemned as a sinner in our place so that now by faith we can receive the promise of the Spirit. This promised Holy Spirit can be ours because of the cross of Christ. That before we have the promise and we have the sending of the Spirit, but something has to happen in between, and that's Jesus' death for us. 
And then in his resurrection, he now with the Father sends the Spirit. But the only way to receive the Spirit is by faith. And our hearts don't like to hear that because we want to earn our way to God so that we have something to boast about. God, look at all my good deeds, though. How'd that fill out my scorecard? But God's plan is not that we would be saved through the law, but actually through faith in his son. Lemuel Haynes says it this way about the work of the spirit in this. It says, none but he who by one word speaking spoke all nature into existence can triumph over the opposition of the heart. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who is represented in scripture as emanating from the Father and the Son, yet co-equal with them both. That as Ezekiel showed us, we have a heart problem. It's not something that we can just fix on our own. We're so opposed to God that we must be born again. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. And what Lemuel Haynes tells us here is that that work of overcoming that opposition, the work of giving us eyes to see and to have faith in Jesus, to believe in the gospel, is the work of the Spirit in us. That the Spirit awakens us to believe, which means you are not a Christian because you decided it. You're not, a, you're not the reason you're a Christian. The Holy Spirit opened your eyes and you said, wow, I need this Savior. I'm a sinner who cannot work my way to God. That was the work of the Spirit in your heart, in your life. So when we look at this window, we can be reminded, even as we look at the rock of ages cleft for us, right, that, that Christ had to die so the Spirit could be sent in fullness. Now we are in the age, in the storyline, we're headed toward home base now. Christ crosses third base, we're headed home. And when we look at the Spirit coming into our lives, we see that the Spirit is a gift. That's grace. We didn't earn that. We just received it. You can't earn a gift. You can only accept it. That we've been made alive by God's mercy. That we've been given a new heart through the work of God. So we could say, I did not save myself, but Christ saved me and sent his spirit to indwell me. That's the fullness of the storyline. That's the furniture in plain sight and the artwork on the wall that God was waiting for a time when he would send his son to die for us and then send his spirit to apply all the things that the son purchased for us. So now we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. And the Holy Spirit continually opens our eyes and hearts to see the beauty of Jesus in the scriptures and the gospel. By grace, we become what we behold as we are transformed into the image of Christ, bearing fruit as image bearers and Christ's ambassadors. That we go from just being simply image bearers of God now uh, without knowing him, just as all human beings are, to now image bearers of Christ, being renewed into the image of Christ. And as Brian talked about last week, that Christ is the image of God. When God wants to see who he is, he looks at his son. And now we are being transformed to look that same way. So what does the New Testament say about the Holy Spirit? This is just a very short rundown of a few key points. There's more on your handout. It says the Holy Spirit leads believers and, and testifies to our adoption as sons of God. We know we're adopted. We know we're safe in the family of God because of the Spirit. He indwells believers as the active presence of Christ in our lives, that we are not left as orphans. 
In fact, we live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians, like an engagement ring or a down payment testifying the blessed future guaranteed to come for us. And lastly, the Holy Spirit brings us into freedom from slavery to the law and trying to earn our way into God's favor and freedom from slavery to sin. That now when the Holy Spirit indwells me, I don't have to sin. I can listen to his voice, walk in his power. And yet I am still a sinner. We've got to talk for a second about justification and sanctification. We've got these big words, big theology words. Justification just means being made right with God. It's the righteousness we receive by faith in Christ. He takes our sin, we get his righteousness. The great exchange that happens when we put our trust in Jesus. But sanctification now, that, so justification is our redemption, our being bought back by God. Sanctification is now the application of that redemption. It is God making us righteous. I love the way the book of Hebrews, which we just went through, says it. And one verse just sums us all up. It says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That Christ's death on the cross made me perfect. And yet I'm being made holy. That Christ's death for us on the cross has made us perfect forever because we're united to him. And he's perfect. And yet, because we're still sinners, we're being made holy. That's the sanctification process. That's simply what that means. But even in that, we see God's grace, that it is God at work, right? It's not who are now making themselves holy. It is who are being made holy. So when we look at this doctrine of sin and salvation and the Holy Spirit, we can look at ourselves and say, I am a complete work in progress. There is nothing about me, my emotions, my desires, my body, my mind, nothing about me that hasn't been tainted by sin and marred by sin. I am in need of complete renewal. And yet I am also a complete work in progress. That comma makes a big difference. But that sanctification that I am okay in Jesus, which means I can actually now start to own up to sin and look at it and declare it ugly and repent because I'm so safe and so secure in what Jesus has done for me that I'm a complete work in progress, totally, everything about me, and yet I'm a complete work who is in progress. And actually in 2 Corinthians it says, we're being transformed from one image of glory to the next, that as we gaze upon who Jesus is, we start to look like him. And we do that by faith, sanctification. This process of being made holy is the same as justification. It happens by faith. I do not like treadmills. What is it about treadmills that are, they're just miserable? Does time, I, time, if you want to live a long life, just spend time on the treadmill because it seems like the longest amount of time possible. But when we, how do we walk out the sanctification? The Bible uses two kind of terms, right? We talk about, the Bible talks about flesh and talks about spirit. I, as much as I hate treadmills, I love moving sidewalks. If you guys go to the airport and you get on a moving sidewalk, they're the best. You walk by the people that like choose 
They're like, nah, I'm good. I'm going to just walk the normal. And you're just, you know, you're just burning them. You're just going right past them. Moving sidewalks bring me a lot of joy, actually. I just love them. And even when you're like kind of going slow, people are passing, you're still moving too. But this is how we walk out our sanctification, that we can try and earn favor with God and buckle down in our own strength, like the treadmill in the strength of the flesh, where we're walking in misery, we're sweating, we're trying to do it in our own power, and we're getting nowhere. Or we can walk out our sanctification in the power of the Spirit, where we actually have joy where we have God's power at work in our lives. We're actually getting somewhere. We're actually moving. And even that is a work of his grace in our lives. But we become what we behold when we gaze upon Jesus, when we look at the scriptures. And that's the other thing. If the Spirit is the capital A author and what he really wants is for us to put our eyes on Jesus, the more we want to be filled with the Spirit, the more we want to be filled with the scriptures. And we want to be filled particularly with the good news and, and see how the Old Testament points to Jesus. See how the New Testament talks about Jesus. Because when we're filled with who Jesus is, we're filled with the Spirit. And then in our church, as gathered believers, we share the Holy Spirit in the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit is at work in our community through the spiritual gifts he's given us together. We utilize those gifts as we seek to join God in his mission to spread the gospel. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about the gifts in this way. It says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between Spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And He distributes them to each one just as he determines. And we don't have time. If you want to learn more about the spiritual gifts, take our theology class. We spent two weeks on it, or one whole week on it, I should say. But, but I want to point out a few things from just this passage. It says the same spirit is in all of them, distributes them, the gifts. It's the same God at work. To each person, the spirit has given gifts. So we can't say, oh, I have no spiritual gifts. And it's, the Spirit is given for the common good. And again, we see here, all of these gifts are given by the Spirit as He determines. So even in the spiritual gifts, we see God's sovereignty. And the Spirit sovereignly chooses to give diversity to the church. We don't all have the same gifts. But we do all have the same Spirit. So we have this combination of unity and diversity that I liken to a jazz band. Man, I love jazz, and I, I, there's something about when a jazz band is working together in consensus and creating beautiful music that really stands out. There's something about the diversity and the unity of the instruments in action, diversity of the instruments, unity of the performers. And something about our church, the way that we relate to each other internally communicates something externally the same way that a jazz band communicates music externally. 
the way that we volunteer, the way that we serve one another, the way that we pursue community with one another is us working to pursue this kind of unity and diversity, this kind of jazz band, this kind of togetherness, this kind of fellowship that communicates something beautiful to people outside the church. Emily, last week when we were praying, Emily Jones uh, prayed and said, we serve, we, we get to know one another by serving one another. Brian and I both, we've never heard that before, but we agree, we love that. That we're going to grow together as a body because we share the same spirit and because we share the same music. We're all looking down at the gospel. And that means we can play together and really put something beautiful together. That comes through time together. It's going to come through fellowshipping with one another, through working through conflict. We have to fight for this, but the Spirit has sovereignly given that we would be unified and diverse, that we're not all the same. The Spirit also wants to see missional expansion. The Holy Spirit comes to expand the kingdom of God through the gifting of God's people to serve the proclamation of the word until all nations are blessed through Christ. Why do we get the spiritual gifts? So that the gospel can go out. That this isn't just internal. That joy and good news have to be shared. When you get good news, you get a text of people, right? We've got the best news in this gospel, so we've got to share it. And we do that with the Great Commission as our mission. This is now the end of Matthew chapter 28. Jesus, it says of Jesus, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. So we see a few things in this even. That now God's name is the triune name, the three-in-one name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we know who God is fully. And we're called to teach and proclaim the gospel, and we have the promise of Jesus that he's with us by the Spirit, that this is our mission as a church. This is why we're here. So how do we get to missional alignment? This is from a book called The, the Mission-Driven Ministry Team, or an, an essay, sorry, and it's mission alignment. When we're on the same page, when we're making music together, moving toward a goal, we have to see that goal as relevant. We have to see it as significant. We have to see it as achievable, and we have to see it as clear. And now this is our hope as leaders, as we seek to make a culture shift here at our church of being more outreach-oriented, more engaged in our community, and more willing to share the gospel and invite people in to our community. As we make that shift, we're going to lead it. We're working right now to, to develop training for our small group leaders, and then we're going to push that out to everybody. But one of the things we have to do is make us all through the scriptures see the clear goal, that this is what God has for us. That it's worth it. There's nothing better to pursue than this mission of making disciples. That it's achievable. It's not in our power. We can't do this. But by the Spirit's power, oh yeah. And clear, can we just picture for a second what it can look like? We'll talk more about that in one second. But the one thing I have to say then is we're not a country club. As a church, we don't exist to just gather members and play rounds of golf, although we are going to play some golf coming up. That we can't be comfortable with being the size that we are and the people that we are. We want to be outreaching and inviting people in, not necessarily because our church is so great, but because our Savior is. 
And that the gospel is such good news it can't be contained in our church. That the spirit compels us to turn outward with the gospel. So who who are we at Hope Lower Town? We're a family of believers who belong to one another. We're bought by the same blood of Christ and indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We're gifted together to lead transformed lives in community on mission, joining God in his work of reconciling all things to himself through the proclamation of the gospel. The only way this is going to happen is by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. We've got to see that. We've got to want it. We've got to see that as worth it. We've got to see that as achievable. And then we've got to see that angle as clear. And just to paint a picture of that, can we imagine days at the park doing baptisms, doing baptisms right back here, people giving their lives to Christ? Can we imagine block parties, getting to know this neighborhood? Can we imagine the joy of meeting new people and making new friends and seeing people come to Christ? That's where we're headed when we make this culture shift. It's obviously gonna take sacrifice, but more importantly, it's gonna take the spirit moving in us. And when he does, great things can happen. And lastly, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, we talk about his role in cosmic redemption and the, and the renewal and restoration of all things. The Holy Spirit utilizes his creative power to make people new in Christ. One day he will also renew the entire fallen creation to a splendor we can only imagine. He will bring us into the glory of a world without sin and death and pain where Christ reigns. That's where we're headed. And we can work toward that now. Leonard Burkhoff in his systematic theology says it this way. In general, it may be said that it is the special task of the Holy Spirit to bring things to completion by acting immediately upon and in the creature just as he himself is the person who completes the Trinity. So his work is the completion of God's contact with his creatures and the consummation of the work of God in every sphere. That now... Because we have the Holy Spirit, we can bring the Holy Spirit who indwells us into every sphere that we go, into our work life, into our parenting, into our family relationships, our friend relationships, into our justice efforts, our community and outreach, getting to know our neighbors. We can work for renewal and redemption because we have the Holy Spirit and because we want to see people hear the gospel. We want to see things made new because that's what God's in the business of doing. That's what he's done in our lives. That's what he's going to do in the creation. We have this promise from Revelation at the end of the book. Home plate where he says, he who was seated on the throne, this is Jesus now saying, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true that this is our promise. So as we look toward closing here, gospel application, are you walking in the spirit or the flesh? Have you seen relating to God as only I got to obey my way to acceptance? Maybe today's the day that you can stop trying to earn your salvation and believe this gospel, put your faith in Jesus. And if you have done that, are you trying to fight sin now and walk by the flesh? Are you trying to just beat things in your own power? Or are you trying to walk by the spirit? And, And then secondly, let's join God in his work of reconciling all things to himself. Just to close here, a few, uh, one last few comments. As we think about the work of the Spirit, anytime we are reminded of the sweetness of Jesus, the kindness and gentleness he has toward us and his death on a cross in our place that we might live, the Spirit is at work. 
Anytime we can sense in our being, our hearts, and our minds the sheer magnitude of God's grace, goodness, and love for us, the Spirit is evoking that beauty. Anytime the scriptures grab a hold of us, break us, put us in tears of grief about our sin, and compel us to repent, we can be assured that it is none other than the Holy Spirit at work. Anytime there is genuine joy, connection, and hope inspired in our hearts as we fellowship with one another, provoking one another on to love and good deeds just by our time together in Christ, we can be sure the Holy Spirit's at work. Anytime we suffer well and hold firm to our faith, trusting in God's goodness, despite the pain of our circumstances, we can know it is the Spirit at work in us. Anytime we refuse to choose sin and set our faces to walk the hard path of giving something up, deciding to be disciplined and walk with him instead of trying to pursue that thing, we can be assured that God is working in us by his spirit. Anytime we are led into praise and worship, awe and wonder, where we feel the immense gravity and glory of God and his gospel, where we sit in the glow of his might, his comfort and his love for us, we can know it is on account of the spirit's work in our lives. Wherever you see people not trying to earn their salvation, but simply trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross, we can know it is the Spirit at work. When you see believers turning from idols and false gods to worship the true God and seek satisfaction only in Him, we can know the Spirit is at work. Anywhere God's people are willing to join together with Him to go on mission, to proclaim the gospel, willing to lay down their lives and their comfort in service of others that they might flourish and that they might hear the good news, we know it is the Spirit at work. Anytime someone hears the word of the cross, repents of sin and believes the gospel and begins the journey of walking with God for the rest of their life, we are guaranteed, the Bible says, that it is the Spirit at work. The Spirit has made them new, and finally one day, all of those who have trusted Jesus, who have been made new by this good news and by the Spirit, are going to see with our glorified eyes the Lord Jesus Christ reigning in his glory in a redeemed creation. We're going to look him face to face and delight in him and his kingdom forever and ever. And we get there by the work of the Holy Spirit and God's goodness in bringing us to him. We're going to move now to a time of communion. If you didn't get a chance, the cup and the, uh, the juice, the finger in the back. At Hope, we, uh, we practice, we call it open communion. You don't, don't have to believe or, or you don't have to be a, a member of this church or any church. The only thing we ask is that you'd be a follower of Jesus. And as we take communion, we remember Christ's body broken for us, that he needed to die for our sin, his blood shed for us, accomplishing the new covenant where we now receive the Spirit. Uh, we're going to sing a couple songs and, and take communion, reflect on God's Spirit's work in your life, uh, and think about and ask about on the handout, there's a place to take notes. How do you want to apply this, this teaching to your life and in our church? I'm going to pray, and, and then we'll sing a couple more songs, take communion, and be done. God, we thank you so much for the fact that you give of yourself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you sent the Son, and now you, Father and Son, have sent the Spirit, that we don't have to try and save ourselves, and we don't have to try and save this church and advance the mission of this church in our own strength. You will do it by your Spirit at work in us. So we just ask for revival. We ask that you would move mightily in our midst, draw our eyes to worship you daily, 
draw our hearts to want to serve you. Bring us to that jazz band unity together that we might make beautiful music going forward into this community and into our relationships to share the gospel with people and invite people into this good news that more and more people might be born again and see your beauty and worship you, God. We worship you now. Be with us as we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.